Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome back to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Today we have two guests with us today where we can talk about late season corn and soybean diseases. Our first guest is Dr. Pierce Paul. He is our corn and small grains pathologist and extension specialist. Welcome, Pierce. Hi, thanks for having me. So Pierce, when we're um, looking at corn diseases, late season diseases, what's our first um, step to identifying those diseases, taking some scouting measures? Um, When do you recommend starting that? Right, so our our major late leaf disease problems typically kick in um, at about late vegetative growth stages and early reproductive growth stages. And that's exactly when you really want to uh, plan your fungicide programs to uh, prevent those leaves from becoming damaged at um, tasseling, pollination, and early grain fill. So I would say, you know, you should start scouting for diseases at around around V15, V18 into uh, tasseling, because that's when you're going to have to make your fungicide application decisions. So what are the recommendations then on how to actually scout for? The, right. I want to focus on a couple of the main diseases we have. Right. Our primary diseases in the state would be uh, gray leaf spot, not on corn leaf blight. We do see eye spot. We do see rust from time to time. But our main diseases and the major targets for fungicide programs would be um, gray leaf spot and um, not on corn leaf blight. And those diseases are both residue-borne diseases and they typically come from bottom up, especially gray leaf spot. They develop from the lower leaves and move up the plant. So I would recommend if you're scouting for gray leaf spot, you walk fields and look on that second leaf before, below the air leaf to um, get, an asset, get an idea of whether or not the disease is present and at what level. So you want to, I say walk random. Look at, look at random plants throughout the field and then look at that second leaf below the air to get a sense for if there is gray leaf spot and at what level. That's great advice. So say I'm walking through the field and I'm seeing that there is some disease present. What things should I be taking into account when I'm considering making a fungicide treatment? Right. So, um, Obviously, you can have several different things on a leaf at the same time. So if you're going to focus on gray leaf spot, you want to look for those um, rectangular lesions on the leaf. Those are lesions that are um, grayish in color, and they're limited by the veins of the leaf. They can start as as small lesions with chlorotic edges or yellowish edges, and then they take on a typical um, rectangular shape. So that would be classic gray leaf spot. If you're looking for northern corn leaf blight, you're looking for water soak lesions that can start as cigar-shaped, small but cigar-shaped lesions, and then they expand and become necrotic or darkish, um, killing parts of the leaf tissue. So you want to make sure you're looking for the right disease to start with. And then the next question you should ask yourself is, um, you know, how much disease do I have? And the idea here, the, the rough guide is to look for, um, you know, disease on that third leaf below the air and 50% of the plants. So you walk the field, look at multiple plants, and if you see the disease you're concerned about on the third leaf uh, below the air, well, I'd say, I'd say the second leaf below the air. The second leaf below the air, 
on 50% of the plants, five out of 10 plants, you probably should look at more than 10 plants, 50 out of 100 plants, then you're probably at threshold. But I guess the first thing you should really ask yourself is if the hybrid you're looking at is resistant or susceptible to disease in question. So if you've got a hybrid and you know it's susceptible to gray leaf spot, then that should be a focus. If you know it's susceptible to northern corn leaf blight, then that should be a focus. So the first question is, is my hybrid susceptible? Typically, if the hybrid is resistant and grayly spot is the major disease you're seeing in your field, then a fungicide application is generally not warranted. So those are, those are the key things you look at. Know which disease you've got, how much, but most importantly, know if the hybrid you're working with is susceptible to that disease, and then you make a call based on that. Okay, and about how much time um, do we have between when we see that threshold and when we need to make the application? That's a very good question. This, that's a question that's heavily dependent, one, on the hybrid susceptibility, and two, on the weather conditions. If the hybrid is susceptible, then that disease is likely going to move fast. And if it's the environmental conditions are favorable, combining favorable environment with a susceptible hybrid, disease is going to move fast. So in about seven days, you're going to have new lesions develop, new spores being produced, and those are going to spread to new leaves and cause that disease to progress up the plant quickly. So again, it depends on the hybrid susceptibility, depends on the weather. So you, you want to look, again, ask questions about the hybrid reaction, look at the environmental conditions, look at the forecast. If you see there's wet, um, humid conditions in the forecast, mornings with those hanging dew, um, you definitely want to consider using a fungicide because within seven days or so, you're going to have more lesions develop and that disease progress up the plant. You mentioned the thresholds. Could you go into some more detail about how much disease needs to be present for an application to be economical? Right, so we're still doing a lot of research to answer those questions because it, it varies from hybrid to hybrid. And most importantly, it varies, varies with um, environmental conditions. Even if the hybrid is susceptible and if conditions are not favorable for disease spread, then you're going to see lesions on that leaf, but it's not going to expand. That's one way of disease increasing, lesions expanding. Or new spores are not going to be produced and spread to new leaves. That's the second way disease increases. So it all depends. Now, um, like I said, we use lesions on the uh, second leaf below the ear as a guide to decide when to apply a fungicide or whether or not a fungicide should be applied. But it could, you know, we need more quantitative estimates of not just lesions, but what percentage of the leaf area is damaged. Again, from some of the work we've done, we see about 5% disease is often associated with response to fungicide applications. So I would use that as my guide at this point. You really want to prevent that disease, though, from reaching the air leaf and the leaves above the air leaf. So you want to, again, manage monitor disease on that third, second and third leaf below the ear, monitor those leaves, and use that as a guide to prevent disease from spreading to the air leaf. We found that if the air leaf has about 5% disease, by the time you get to um, the maturity, we found association between 5% disease and um, yield reduction or, or yield response to fungicide. So Pierce, you mentioned that around 5% we can start to see like loss, uh, what are the consequences of not managing these diseases? 
Right. So if your, your hybrid is susceptible and you don't apply a fungicide in a timely manner and the environment is favorable, you can obviously see a reduction in grain yield and reduction in grain yield could come in multiple ways. You've got, um, if the disease comes in late, you're going to have a reduction in the size of the kernels on the air and you've got a reduction in size of the air. So those are the main yield components affected by diseases coming in after um, after tasseling. Um, an indirect consequence of, of not controlling yield diseases is um, reduction in stock strength. Obviously that depends on the hybrid. If you've got hybrids with a good with good rind strength, even though it might be susceptible to disease, um, it can stand up after some can tolerate some level of disease without suffering um, lodging. But if the hybrid is susceptible and doesn't have the greatest um, rind strength, then you can have um, lodging as well. You can have um, damage to the um, pith, the internal pith of the stems, and that could cause lodging, especially if you've got a windstorm or you've got um, something preventing harvest from going, um, taking place early. So those are some of the direct and indirect consequences of not getting diseases managed. So again, if you see if your hybrid is susceptible, conditions are favorable, you definitely want to put on a fungicide, reduce uh, reduction in grain yield itself, and then minimize those indirect losses associated with lodging. Excellent. Here's another late season issue that is going to affect yield and even grain quality are ear rots. What are some things that we should be looking for and when should we start looking for, for them? Right. So even, you know, before you get to late season, uh, ear rot, potential ear rot problems, some of those lodging situations I talked about with poorly managed leaf diseases can cause lodging and lodging can cause ear to come into contact with the ground. And that could be a source of ear rot problems as well. Even though that's not the primary source of ear rot problems, you can still have ear rot problems associated with lodging. As we get towards the end of the season, actually even before we get towards the end of the season, wet conditions during pollination can favor air rot, um, the infection of the ears with air rot fungi. The problem is you don't know that you have an air rot problem until you get to the end of the season. And if when you get to the end of the season, as you approach the end of the season, then you want to walk fields, especially those fields that are um, no-tilled. Those are generally the fields that are most likely to have problems with air rots. You want to walk some of those fields and um, look at plants in those um, along the rows to see exactly if you've got reason to think you have air rot problems. And the best way to look without even um, damaging the plants or removing the ears is to look at that ear leaf. If you've got air rot problems and the problem is fairly severe, then you're going to see green plants standing in your field with the air leaf dying or the air leaf dead. That's the first sign of potential air rot problems. You want to walk up to those ears and um, to those plants and um, peel back the husk and you're probably going to see if you've got an air rot problem. So the first telltale sign is walk rows, random plants. They don't occur in groups like you would see with leaf diseases. You would see random plants in the field and um, the air leaf is going to be dying or it's going to be dead and the whole plant is still going to be green and when you peel them back you're going to see air rots. Now the big, the big thing about air rot is getting a sense for which air rot you've got. 
because air rods are associated with mycotoxins, but not all air rods are associated with mycotoxins. So the key, the next key step, if you see air rot, get a sense for how many plants out of 100 that you walk in the field are showing symptoms of air rot, and then knowing which air rot you've got. Are there ear rots that are more detrimental to grain quality than others? Um, those that produce vomitoxins? Right, definitely. The ear rots are biggest concern in terms of, of, uh, of um, grain quality would be those associated with mycotoxin production. And the biggest one in this part of the country would be um, gibberella ear rot. You've got um, fusarium ear rot as well. You've got diplogia ear rot. And while those are a concern, concern. The one we are most concerned about is um, gibberella air rot. That produces um, pinkish white mycelial growth starting at the tip of the air and it can move down. And severe air rot is associated with the production of um, dioxin evolanol, commonly referred to as vomitoxin. And that's a concern because, you know, it's a concern in ethanol production. And if the grain is going to be used for ethanol production, then the level of vomitoxin or dioxin evolanol increases threefold in the DDGs coming out of the ethanol production. And that's not um, good because those DDGs are destined for consumption by animals. So that's, that would be my biggest concern with air rods. And if you really want to focus on one air rod, then focus on Gibrella air rod and to see exactly if you've got that problem, to know if you need to send grain samples for testing for mycotoxins or um, be concerned about um, potential problems later on. But as far as yield loss, they can all be just as detrimental. Yeah, severe air rot, air rot can actually cause, cause yield loss as well. We, we're not often very focused on, on the yield loss aspects of, of air rots, but they do cause yield reduction. And if you've got a hybrid that's susceptible, and unfortunately we typically don't know how susceptible the hybrids we plant are to air rots, but if you've got a hybrid that's susceptible and conditions are favorable, that would be cool wet conditions during a couple of weeks after silking, and even wet conditions during harvest, then you can actually see a reduction in yield. Obviously, depending on when the disease comes in, different yield component is going to be affected. If it comes in early enough, then it can reduce the size of the air as well and the size of the kernels on the air. Because remember that fungus enters via the silk channel, and if it enters via the silk channel early enough, then grain development is going to be affected. So it does affect yield reduction, both um, not only Gibrella ARAT, but also Diplogia ARAT and Fusarium ARAT as well. If we're finding symptoms of ARATs in the field, are there any actions that we can take to slow the progression or lessen the, the yield impact? Right. Typically, um, with ARATs, you see symptoms so late that there's very little you can do. A lot of times, fungicides would be off-label because it's too late pre-harvest interval would have passed. But even if the pre-harvest intervals had not passed, we don't see very consistent results with fungicides for, for air rod control. We're still running some of those experiments. We're still testing some of those fungicides to see exactly if we can reproduce some of the results we see with scab control in wheat, for example, in terms of air rod control in corn. But um, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot you can do to 
prevent damage that minimize damage in at the field level but what you can do is plan harvesting strategy and grain handling strategy to minimize ARAT development or ARAT increase and mycotoxin increase in storage those would be try to harvest those affected fields first it's a value to know exactly what you've got and how much and harvest those affected fields first um, even if you have to harvest at a slightly higher moisture content and you want to do that, then dry down the grain to about 13 to 15% moisture to prevent mycotoxin spread in storage. And most importantly, get a sample tested so at least you know what levels of mycotoxin you're working with. So those are mostly post-harvest or grain handling strategies, but there's very little you can do once you observe um, an ARAD problem in the state, in your field. So you've got some monitoring stations set up around the state this year. Do you want to talk a little bit about what information you're collecting there related to EROTs? Right. So we've had questions from stakeholders as to whether we can use our SCAP forecasting system to predict Jabrella EROT. So what we're doing is um, collecting information this year from 19 locations across the state, the 10 locations of the corn performance trial, and then we are working with farmers and extension educators to collect data from nine additional locations across the state. And basically, we are monitoring environmental conditions and monitoring the development of Gibrella ARAT specifically. But if we find Fusarium ARAT and deploy the ARAT, we're collecting that information as well. So one of the things we're doing is looking at hybrid reaction from some of the hybrids in the performance trial to see exactly if we can identify those hybrids that are most susceptible to ARATs. And we are looking at weather conditions associated with Jabrella ARAT. So once we collect that information, we're going to summarize rainfall patterns and temperature patterns and relative humidity patterns and see how that's associated with whether or not um, Jabrella ARAT develops and how much. And that information can ultimately be used to develop um, risk assessment models moving forward. So speaking of the scab forecasting, um, we're into wheat harvest now. Um, what did you see, if anything, with wheat diseases this year, and how is that scab forecasting system working? You know, the scab forecasting system continues to do well. Um, it's, it's a system that, that helps us to assess the risk of scab um, early enough to make a fungicide application. That's part of the reason we, we um, we're going to um, look at trying to develop a similar system for Jabrella, ARAT, and corn. You know, for most of the, for most of, uh, the season, the eastern half of the state was uh, considered to be at moderate to high risk for scab, but um, the eastern half of the state is not, with, not, not, is not where most of our wheat is. And based on the reports coming in so far, um, we're still probably a little too early as guys harvest grain, we're going we're gonna to know more. But the levels of scab in the western half of the state, I think it's been low to moderate. So that's consistent with what the forecasting system showed this year. Pierce, you've shared a lot of great information with us today. Do you have any resources that our listeners can go to if they'd like to find out more? So the primary, primary source of information, at least most up-to-date information to address issues that you're seeing in your field at a specific time in the season would be our corn, corn newsletter. So um, it's corn.osu.edu. You can find updates from myself and, and, and Dr. Dorrance on pathology-related issues and updates from other um, agronomists and other specialists on other issues facing the crop. 
we've got our field crops disease website as well where you can find additional information that are specific to um, diseases and our fact sheets are also online where you can find more information but you know you've got um, my email paul at 661 if you got a question you can shoot me an email you can send images as well and you can call me on my cell phone or my office phone if you've got additional questions great and we can put uh, your email address in our description of this episode yep sounds good to me all right well thank you so much for your time today our next guest today is dr ann dorrance she is the soybean research and extension pathologist in the College of Food, Agricultural and Environmental Sciences at Ohio State. Welcome, Anne. Oh, hello. So to start off with, could you give us an idea of what sort of things you're seeing in the field this season? So this season has been a little rough. Um, a lot of farmers got in late, later than the normal calendar date than they did, and then they made up for lost time. So in our fields with these big intermittent storms, um, they're either no rain or buckets of rain with higher record, these are record setting rains where we're getting two to five inches within a single rain event. So with that, we are seeing seedling diseases. So especially on untreated seed, seed that had no fungicide or anything for the water molds, um, we're seeing a lot of scatter damping off so farmers do need to go and check their stands, make sure that they've got, um, based on our agronomist, Laurel Lindsay, Dr. Lindsay, um, that they do have a minimum of 100,000 to get them through to the whole rest of the year. So now is the time that some last minute replant decisions are being made before we get too late. Excellent, it is definitely important to make sure there's enough beans out there to get to the end of the season. You noted that we've had a lot, a lot of variability in our weather conditions. Across a lot of the state, it has been hotter and wetter than average. So what sorts of diseases should we be concerned with? So in addition to the seedling diseases, you know, we've got the water molds and some of the ones that are caused by the fungi, Rhizoctonium. Um, We've seen a spike in charcoal rot in the last few years, um, especially when we go through these long dry spells. So charcoal rot has been typically thought of as a southern disease, but um, some recent data from one of our um, recent graduates, PhD students, we actually found um, charcoal rot really throughout the state. So. What'll happen is, is when we hit a really dry spell and we're overplanted, um, we'll, we could see early maturing um, much more, about two to three weeks earlier than normal. So it's just something when we get to the late in the season, if the weather continues to be stressful, we'll see more diseases down the road. Another disease that we could see that infections are occurring now, but we won't see the symptoms of till later in the season, is sudden death syndrome. Uh, sudden death syndrome is an interesting pathogen in that the infections actually occur in the seedling stage. And, uh, the fungus only colonizes the crown and the roots. It's a, just a root rotter. And then it forms a toxin though. And that toxin at the end of the season, um, just after the pods have filled and the plant begins to mature and fill the seed, 
um, you'll see these, be um, beautiful is not the right word, um, you'll see these really bright yellow, brown necrosis in the leaves. And the fungus isn't in the leaves, it's just the toxins. So that's one we might also see at the end of the season. I love hearing you talk about the diseases. It's beautiful. <laughs> only a pathologist can only see that. Only a pathologist, and only in my research plots, right? <laughs> oh, definitely. Every time you say that, I, I have to smile. Because what you see as beautiful is a potential yield robber for, for farmers. It is a potential yield robber. Now, with sun death syndrome, it, it does appear to be a big yield robber. However, it has, um, it's usually found in association with cyst nematode. And that is the true yield robber. Um, when we have these two, there's been all kinds of debate and all kinds of studies, but Overall, if you've got soybean cyst nematode in your field, that's what you really need to focus on. Um, interestingly, that we're kind of moving in that direction. Um, with soybean cyst nematode, we're now in the midst of uh, raising awareness. Um, the SCN Coalition is back, um, sponsored through the Chekhov uh, funds. And really what we've been finding in several states is resistance to the 888-788 is beginning to develop in the cyst populations. So we have over statewide about half of the cyst populations that we've collected and tested in the university labs at Ohio State. We're finding a slow adaptation where we are getting reproduction. It's not the same as is susceptible, but we are seeing an increase in reproduction on this resistance. So it's lasted for 20 years. It's the primary source of resistance. This PI that came from China, 88788, it's a multigenic resistance. So the fact that it's lasted this long is really wonderful. And so doing the survey now, finding out where our populations are high, and if they are high, you know, what how does that population respond to 8878 or another source of resistance, Peking? That's our goal to really get a handle on over the next year. So you mentioned that there's a program available to help determine if SCN is a problem in your fields? That's true. Um, right now, we, we have funding through Ohio Soybean Council, through the Soybean Checkoff, to actually go through and survey. So if people, if farmers are members of the American Soybean Association, um, we've kind of gone through that group first. Um, people, if they're not a member, but they still want, um, want to get sampled, um, just maybe we're, we're going to do those folks in the next year and we'll have the county educators um, help help coordinate that. We've done a really pretty broad surveys with some work from Dr. Laura Lindsay and also Steve Coleman with her fertility. So we're going to try to hit fields in areas of the state that we've never hit before. So we really can do a really a good scientific assessment. And then after that, then it'll be the free for all, hopefully. Excellent. I think that's a great opportunity to, to understand what, what's decreasing yields in some of our soybean fields. So now is a good time to get out and be checking to see for some of these symptoms. If someone is going to go out and scout, what sorts of things should they be looking at from both the disease perspective and perhaps SCN? Okay. So at this time of year, especially if a farmer knows where his problems were, you know, those fields that always give problems. Um, sclerotinia is a good example, white mold. We're just started to flower, right? So the fungicides for sclerotinia 
on those historic fields were, were at that time of application if the field is canopied and if that's a susceptible variety in that field. Um, we've got cool nights, um, which actually are conducive to the little mushrooms, little apothecia um, shooting up spores on the flowers. So this is a good time um, to kind of take a look at that. Other things, um, we're keeping an eye out open for frog eye leaf spot, um, especially going through the flowering period because those fungicide need decisions need to be made for the R3 applications. Again, only on susceptible varieties and pretty typically only on fields that have a continuous soybean history where the frog eye's been there. The inoculum's there, it's going to build up much faster. Cis nematode, I would probably wait a little bit for cis nematode. You can sample now for the soil, but with cis, what I find is usually when the beans start getting taller, um, really start putting on the growth and filling out. If you're walking through a field and there's heavy cyst pressure, you'll be walking along and the beans will be waist high and next thing you know, they're only knee high. And that's a good spot where we've probably got populations that are really causing some significant yield loss. So hopefully no one will find those, but those are the good ones. And you can actually take a shovel, pull them out, if you're on sandy soil, pull them out, and you'll actually be able to see the cyst on the roots. So the cyst on the roots would be what you were looking for to say it wasn't necessarily an area that just had standing water? Because I'm Exactly. Exactly. And it also, you know, if you don't see the cyst on the roots and they are short, there might be another cause. Okay. So what, what would that be? All right. So if, if we are scouting and we're seeing some of these issues in the field, um, are there any treatment options or things management-wise that we can do to lessen our yield impacts? So if it's, you're not going to find things like sclerotinia, you know, right at this point, I mean, because the infections haven't occurred yet. So those things all have to be proactive. But if you're walking in the fields and you find frog eye, then scheduling that field for a frog eye fungicide, a fungicide that will affect frog eye um, at that R3 application. Uh, but for diseases, really, the crop plant should have resistance. I mean... Resistance in soybeans, a company spent a lot of money on it, um, a lot of breeding. So really, there shouldn't be much you should have to do. So it's one thing that you can save money on additional inputs if you make that right, the best variety selection up front early on. So if we find an issue this year, then the best way to manage that would be to make decisions in the future. Or would you say seed treatments or just... So it, uh, that's a good question. Um, if, if stand loss has been a big issue this year and you're confident that it was from all these seedling blights, um, really go back and A, did you put a seed treatment on? And B, what was it? You know, do you, did you, you know, did you, uh, did you leave out a couple ingredients that maybe you shouldn't have, you know, or switch it up? If, um, if you do find a disease this year, most of these diseases, especially the foliar ones, will overwinter on the residue. So, or if you have high cyst populations, um, you know, the next year in that field should be growing something different. Um, really getting back to really expanding our crop rotation would be, put me out of business almost, you know? <laughs> I wouldn't have anything to do. So that, that's one thing to think about. So crop rotation, and then if you do have a disease in the field, 
really go into and in looking at, at choosing a different variety because most of the things can be managed with host resistance. Excellent. Well, Anne, we've covered a lot of information today. Is there somewhere our listeners can go to learn more about what you talked about? One of the first resources that I post things to and, and discuss things on a weekly basis is the corn newsletter. So um, we get together, I hear from grow I hear from extension educators, I've heard from growers during the week and my own uh, tours around the state, so to try to summarize what the issues are, that's that what we've been finding, what we've been hearing. So I found that really good. And with that are links to several our different websites. So I have a u.osu.edu uh, website um, that has all of our fact sheets. We've got a lot of pictures of the diseases um, so that people can kind of compare notes. We've also got our um, field book, our field crop disease book, which has got a lot of the pictures. So that's gonna be forthcoming, the latest edition, but a lot of the same pictures are on the website in that book. It makes a, the book is nice because you can just throw it in the truck um, and have it from there. And then we're always glad to get emails if people have questions. All right, well, we'll definitely include the links and your email in the description of the podcast so that you can click on those. And thank you so much for taking time out of this busy summer to talk to us. No, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.